former President Donald Trump is found liable for sexually abusing and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll. A jury says he's to pay her $5 million. Also, President Biden meets with congressional leaders over the debt ceiling. It's Tuesday, May 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. The latest on the debt limit talks coming up. We're trying to hold the debt hostage to us to agree to some draconian cuts. And you might have signed up to buy third-party electricity that's billed as 100% renewable. But what are those suppliers actually selling, and is it helping the planet? They're not, like, literally bringing, you know, solar power to your home. But you wouldn't necessarily know that from the marketing materials. The latest from our environmental team coming up. It's 401. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Major legal victory today for the woman who accuses former President Donald Trump of raping her nearly 30 years ago. NPR's Ilya Merritt supports a New York jury finds today Trump liable for battery and defamation against columnist and author E. Jean Carroll. Carroll went public with her story in 2019 when Trump was still president. He vehemently denied the allegation, saying, she's not my type. She sued for defamation and then sued him again last year after New York passed a law allowing civil complaints over old allegations of sexual assault. The jury of six men and three women deliberated less than three hours before finding that Trump more likely than not sexually abused Carol and that he defamed her. He's being ordered to pay a total penalty of $5 million. Trump has said he'll appeal. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. In a verified post on his social network, Truth Social, Trump characterizes the jury's decision as, quote, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Trump faces a litany of other legal troubles, from hush money payments to his role in 2020 election fraud claims and violence at the U.S. Capitol. Trump's again running for office in 2024. President Biden is welcoming House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other top congressional leaders to the White House this hour. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports a meeting comes just weeks before a deadline to raise the nation's debt ceiling. The stakes are extremely high. If lawmakers fail to reach an agreement, the nation could default on its debt by as early as June 1st. White House Communications Director Ben LeBolt tells NPR that House Republicans are playing with fire by tying spending cuts to the government's borrowing capacity. The president believes the appropriate process for this is the one um, that already exists, which is the budget and appropriations process. So he will not negotiate over default. The Republican-led House has passed legislation that would lift the borrowing limit for one year in exchange for deep cuts in government spending. Democrats, including President Biden, have repeatedly argued that raising the debt ceiling is non-negotiable. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. There's a new breast cancer screening recommendation from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports... The group concludes women should begin getting mammograms at age 40. There's been a rise in breast cancer among people under the age of 50. Dr. Carol Mangione of UCLA is co-author of the new recommendation and says there's evidence to show the benefit of mammograms for women in their 40s. New and more inclusive science has allowed us to expand our prior recommendation and encourage all women to get screenings starting at the age of 40. Every other year. Until now, women had been encouraged to talk to their health care providers about when to start screenings. About 42,000 women die of breast cancer each year. And Dr. Mangione says if all women followed the recommendations, deaths could be reduced by about 20 percent. It's NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. State Senate leaders today unveiled their budget proposal to fund state operations for the new fiscal year that begins July 1st. As WBUR's Steve Brown reports, it's somewhat in line with what the House passed last month. The Senate's nearly $56 billion plan comes in $400 million less than the House version, but the Senate number could grow once amendments are adopted. The Senate is looking to make community college free for everyone by the fall of next year. Senate President Karen Spilka said they want to make it free for nursing students this fall. We constantly are hearing about the shortage of nurses in our health care system and the concerns that all of our providers, our residents have because of this shortage of nurses. So this investment $20 million will pay dividends over time. The full Senate will debate the plan later this month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Massachusetts Auditor Diana DiZoglio is reviewing possible legal action as she looks to conduct an audit of the state legislature. The House Speaker and Senate President have stated in the past that Auditor DiZoglio does not have the authority to perform such an audit. They say the legislature conducts its own fiscal year audits. DiZoglio announced her intent to audit the House and Senate in March, criticizing the legislature as a closed-door operation. WBUR has reached out to the Speaker and Senate President for reaction. Harvard and Boston University are receiving nearly $7 million from the National Institutes of Health to build a research center focused on climate change and health. The ultimate goal of the three-year grant involves creating a better understanding of the negative health effects associated with climate change. University officials say the new center will make it easier for experts in those fields to connect, collaborate, and share data. Well, the beautiful weather continues the next few days. Tonight, skies will be clear. We'll have a low in the mid-40s. Tomorrow looks bright and sunny again with a high around 73 degrees. Thursday, lots of sunshine and temps around 80. Friday, approaching 80 again. It should be partly sunny, but there will be a chance of thunderstorms. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A federal jury in New York has found former President Donald Trump liable for battery and defamation in the lawsuit brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. Carroll says Trump raped her in a Manhattan department store in the mid-1990s. She's been awarded $5 million in damages. So stay with us. We'll have more on that decision coming up. First, here in Washington, the White House is the setting of a high-stakes meeting. President Joe Biden sits down with congressional leaders from both sides of the aisle. On the agenda, crafting a deal to raise the debt ceiling. That would allow the federal government to keep paying its bills, you know, things like Social Security and the military. After we pass a clean debt ceiling bill and get the debt The sad part here is now the Democrats need to do their job. Our MAGA Republicans in Congress are threatening to undo all this progress. But what are the odds this group ends the bickering and makes a deal today? NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving answers that question. No one thinks this is going to be the meeting where it happens. It's just necessary to get the process started. A White House summit where the president has home field advantage. That's nothing new. Biden has used it before, as have his predecessors going way back. 
Trump held an Oval Office meeting with then-House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer in December 2018. That was shortly before Democrats took control of the House. Trump tried to hold the pair's feet to the fire on border wall funding. If we don't have border security, we'll shut down the government. This country now, these meetings border. are not always about money, but they often are. And across decades, administrations and Congresses, they all seem to use the same stagecraft. Well, we've all seen the kabuki theater of these things before. The leaders of Congress arrive at the White House. There's a gaggle of media people, cameras and microphones, uh, maybe some shouted questions in the room, maybe some smiles, a little show of confidence, and then the meeting begins. The president and the leaders then talk in private and come back out to announce what has been accomplished or not. But if it's just political theater, what's the point? Is there a larger endgame at work? Yes, and it entails a far larger cast than just these four congressional leaders and President Biden. Many people who are working for them are going to be working on this more or less around the clock for the next several weeks. So how does what happens today set up that round-the-clock work over the next few weeks? Let's bring in NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. She is at the Capitol. Hey there, Deirdre. Hey, Mary Louise. All right, so as we heard, the president has insisted... Congress needs to pass a clean bill to lift the debt ceiling. No conditions. The speaker says any bill has to include spending cuts. Are we expecting to see any middle ground today? We're not. Both sides are really dug in, and no one really expects any major movement today. I caught up with the speaker earlier today, and he repeatedly argued that House Republicans were the only ones that have passed a bill to avoid a default. Has the Senate done anything on this? Has the president even negotiated on this or sat down? No, he fought hard to make sure we didn't. So why should I have high expectations if he wasted three months? Over at the White House, the message to House Republicans continues to be pass a bill to raise the debt limit, and then we'll talk about spending cuts. The speaker says given how much time there is left before the country runs out of money to pay its bills, he thinks they need to have a framework for a deal by next week. But given how far apart they are, it's really unclear whether that's even possible. Right. Well, something has to break this logjam. So are we seeing signals from either side over what would make them budge? Not really. I mean, the reality is they are really far apart. The House Republican bill is dead on arrival in the Senate. Democrats have labeled it default on America, DOA. Yeah. Also, what the president wants and what he'll, uh, Democratic leaders want, a bill just to raise the debt limit with nothing else attached to it, can't pass the House or the Senate. The speaker keeps arguing that back in 2011, when there was divided government and Biden was then the vice president, there was a bipartisan deal that included spending reforms attached to a debt ceiling increase. It's worth noting that a key player in that negotiation, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, is in the meeting today at the White House. But McConnell has made it clear publicly that any deal has to come between the president and Speaker McCarthy. You know, I'm thinking often with standoffs like this, there is what each side is saying publicly and to reporters like you, and then there's what's happening behind the scenes. Are we seeing both sides trying to affect the debate outside the negotiating room? We are. Our colleague Asma Halid, who covers the White House, reports that the Treasury Secretary and other top economic advisors are reaching out to business leaders, CEOs, urging them to talk more about what a default could mean as a way to pressure Republican leaders. Even before the meeting, President Biden scheduled a trip to Hudson Valley, New York, which happens to be home to a freshman Republican, Mike Lawler, uh, to put some pressure on him and other Republicans in swing districts. Lawler was given a heads up, and I'm told by his office he's actually going to that event on Wednesday. 
outside PACs uh, are getting involved. McCarthy's outside super PAC is spending money on ads, and House Republican Campaign Committee is already targeting 35 House Democrats in swing districts. So they're both really trying to have this messaging battle outside of Washington as well. And aside from the messaging, just one more question on the substance. If there is a deal, when there is a deal, what, what might it look like? Well, we don't think there will be any short-term extension of the debt ceiling. At least for now, both sides are ruling that out. They could try to attach some spending caps that they have in the past to some kind of bill to raise the debt ceiling. There's also a push to maybe include some kind of policy provision, something that was in the House Republican bill. One specific provision focuses on permitting new energy projects. Mm -hmm. That's something that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat up for re-election, says should be part of the talks. That is NPR's Deirdre Walsh at the Capitol. Thank you. Thank you. There's a joke that journalist John Archibald tells about reporting in his home state of Alabama. Uh, it's a great place to do news. You can throw a rock and hit a scandal at any given moment in time. John and his son, Ramsey Archibald, threw one of those rocks. They ended up uncovering a scandal at a local police department outside Birmingham. Their reporting for the website AL.com resulted in the resignation of the police chief, four new laws, a state audit, and a Pulitzer Prize awarded yesterday for that father-son team, along with their colleagues Ashley Remkes and Challen Stevens. John and Ramsey Archibald are with me now. Congratulations to both of you. All of us in journalism are so happy for what you accomplished. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. John, you, the father, have the rare fortune of having won a Pulitzer before, but now the two of you are winning one together. What does it feel like to be a father-son winning this together? It's the most amazing thing I've ever felt. But, you know, sitting here today to do that with my kid is, is the greatest thing I've ever done in my career. And Ramsey, for you? It's, it's really difficult to put into words, honestly, but it's really just a pleasure and an honor to work with this team and to do it with my dad is unbelievable. But to do it with the journalist that my dad is, uh, you know, take our relationship out of it, I'm pretty lucky to do that also. Your reporting was not just one story, but multiple stories over the course of last year. For our listeners who haven't read your reporting, could you give a brief summary of what you found? Um, there are moments in a reporter's life when, you know, the hair on the back of your neck stands up because you know you found something, and this was a series of those. This is a town of 1,253 people that had a one-man police department and very little crime reported to the state, yet it uh, was using fines and fees to fund half of its revenue. You could get pulled over for anything in Brookside. Uh, some of the common things were following too closely or not, or having a paper tag up from a car you just bought, and people would get stopped for something like that and end up with seven or eight or nine or ten charges against them, misdemeanors that would, that would cost them thousands and thousands of dollars. John, I understand you had some concerns, some reservations about your son entering a profession that has been so rewarding to you. Why was that? I, I worry because it's a very difficult business to get into for any young person these days because jobs uh, are often um, perilous. And so I worry about that. But at the same time, I'm out giving speeches to people saying, you know, we desperately need young, smart, creative, thoughtful, honest young people to carry us through journalism until we figure this stuff out. So how in the world could I not want somebody I know who is all of those things um, to go in the business. And Ramsey, you went into the business, even though the industry is in rough condition right now, and you went 
to work alongside your dad, which can have ups and downs. How has that been? Yeah, uh, the vast majority of the time, it is amazing. Uh, and, you know, I'm saying that now after teaming up to win a Pulitzer, so maybe I have some rose-colored glasses on. But um, <laughs> even before now winning his second, even before winning his first Pulitzer Prize, you know, he was the golden standard of journalism in Alabama. And growing up with that and then deciding to sort of follow in his footsteps, that wasn't necessarily an easy decision, but I'm very fortunate to have been able to do it and, and to work together with him. Is, it's been amazing. I'm sorry. I'm just saying you should hear the names he calls me on the basketball court. <laughs> That's a separate matter. In journalism today, sometimes you can put a lot of hard work into a story and then feel like it didn't make a difference. And that's really disappointing. But you really made a difference with this story. Can you talk about some of the ways you improve people's lives? Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff over the years that cost people jobs, that cost politicians their careers, or that, you know, send people to jail. And those that's one kind of feeling, and it's really important in journalism. But in this situation, I mean, there were people over and over coming to me and saying, you know, I got my life back. and. Uh, in 37 years of doing this job, I've never experienced anything like that. And it gives me a whole new perspective on why we do this job. I mean, I mean, that's the reason you get into this field. And it's so great to be, you know, to get this kind of recognition and for people to pay attention beyond Alabama. But it would have been worth it without any of this just to have those people, like you said, come say, you know, I got my life back from this. Um, I think that's all you can ask for. That was AL.com columnist John Archibald and data reporter Ramsey Archibald, his son. They're part of the Pulitzer Prize-winning team that uncovered a series of stories about aggressive policing in the town of Brookside, Alabama. Thank you to both of you, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for spending part of your afternoon with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll hear reaction from political leaders to a jury's decision today that former President Trump is liable for sexually abusing and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. On Wall Street today, the Dow dipped 0.17 percent. The S&P lost almost half a percentage point, and Nasdaq slipped 0.63 percent. In business news, tobacco giant Philip Morris USA has been ordered to pay $37 million to a Newton woman who developed brain cancer after smoking Marlboro Light cigarettes. The state Supreme Judicial Court issued that ruling today. A lawyer for the plaintiff argued the woman may have stopped smoking sooner had she not been deceived by the company's marketing. The company claimed Marlboro Marlboro Lights were healthier than Marlboro Reds, despite internal company research from the 1970s finding that was not true. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360. And Xfinity Internet. Announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now.
Skies should stay mostly clear tonight. It'll be a little chilly with temps around 44 degrees. It'll be sunny again tomorrow and warmer. Temps should hit the low to mid 70s. Thursday could hit 80 degrees under even more sunny skies. And Friday, a chance of thunderstorms. Otherwise, it'll be partly sunny with a high approaching 80. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. What goes on in the minds of animals? It's an age-old question that we may never truly answer. But the writer Dave Eggers has imagined one possibility in his new book, The Eyes and the Impossible. His protagonist is a wild, free-thinking dog named Johannes, an incredibly confident creature who abhors leashes and runs at the speed of light, according to to himself. His job is to serve as the eyes of the vast urban park where he resides, reporting what he sees to the other animals to make sure the so-called equilibrium of the park is forever preserved. And then one day that equilibrium falters. Author Dave Eggers joins us now at the studios of NPR West to talk about the magnificent beast at the center of his new story. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, thank you for coming in today. So tell me, what first moved you to write a novel from the perspective of a dog? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I experimented with this voice like 23 years ago with a short story, and it was the most sort of liberating and joyful kind of writing I've ever done. And I always thought, why would I not be doing that every day, writing from this point of view? Something about that perspective just, well, this terrible pun, unleashes me. And so (laughs) (laughs) I I keep finding myself with that word in my mouth. But it's more fun than anything else that I've ever done. And so I finally got back to it. Was there a Johannes in your life? Like, did you once have a dog with a spirit that reminded you of Johannes? Never had a dog. Really? No. You seem like such a dog person in this world. We grew up with cats, weirdly (laughs) enough, and lizards. It's so strange. I love dogs, but I've never had one. That's funny. So for some reason during COVID, we got cats again. So weirdly, I'm a cat person, but I do love and appreciate dogs. And I'm convinced that they have, you know, very complicated souls and that they exult in their abilities, in their speed. And I think that people are starting to study why animals play. Can they appreciate beauty? You know, uh, do they grieve? All of these things. Of course they do. Of course they do. But, you know, Johannes is particularly hypnotized by beauty. And yeah. it gets him in a lot of trouble. Well, not just hypnotized by beauty, but hypnotized by hyperbole. I think it's so <laughs> funny the conclusions you draw about the inner workings of a dog's mind. Like, Johannes exaggerates all the time. The park is 10,000 miles long. That was 200 years ago. I am the speed of light. I mean, what could possibly convince you that dogs have an outsized perspective on the universe? Yeah, he's not good at math either. <laughs> he can't tell time. He has no sense of distance or... Uh, how big anything actually is or how many 
you know, fellow animals or anything. They're all, he just exaggerates everything. Everything is just sort of the largest number that he can conceive. But luckily he has friend animals that are better at math and can read and things like that. <laughs> right. So they help right. him out. <laughs> you know, I was also trying to picture this park. And yes, as a fellow Bay Area native, it does feel like Golden Gate Park. So like, what made you decide you want to set Johannes's world in Golden Gate Park? Well, you know, it is his whole world. And for most of the book, he's never left. But Golden Gate Park is a huge, vast, wild park for being an urban park. And yeah. I think the biggest, best urban park maybe in, you know, in existence. It's got so many facets to it. Take that Central Park. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Central Park is beautiful, but it's a little bit more manicured. And mm -hmm. Golden Gate Park, so much of it is totally wild still. So you do see strange things there all the time, whether it's hippies dancing <laughs> without music, <laughs> which is what happened the last time I was there. There's always something very unusual happening, but it's populated with thousands or tens of thousands of animals. So I thought, well, what if his perspective is this wild, beautiful place, but it is cordoned off by, mm -hmm. you know, that grid of streets that, you know, the Richmond district and the sunset on either side, right. it is very orderly and gray on either side. And yeah. then the sea at the end, you know, right. and so the animals in the park are trying to make sure that human development doesn't encroach too much. Hordes of revelers that are there for concerts and stuff don't despoil the land, but, you know, so far they've been able to keep that balance. But it starts getting challenged a little bit from an unexpected place. True. But can we just talk about the ducks? Because, like, <laughs> what do you have against ducks? Throughout this whole story, Johannes has such a deep disdain for ducks. It made me think, what did a duck ever do to you, Dave? I have nothing. <laughs> you know what? Ducks have only been good to me. <laughs> but I thought that you have to give the dogs and the animals. In the book, the ducks are super unreliable. Yeah. And there are those creatures in all of our lives that no matter what you do, they're just not going to show up. They don't even know what it means to lend a hand. And it was funny because my editor kept saying, like, should we redeem the ducks at some point? Should the ducks... I was wondering if you're going to go there. Nope. <laughs> and I thought, that's just too easy. That's always like the sort of go-to thing. And I thought, what if we just <laughs> leave them as sort of uh, useless <laughs> as, as they ducks. are at the beginning? <laughs> When Johannes discovers where the park is in relation to the greater world, I was curious when I got to that part, was that moment reminiscent of a realization that you personally had at some point about your position in relation to the universe? Wow. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a bubble. I was in a beautiful little town north of Chicago, and I didn't get on a plane till I was 16. I didn't have a passport till I was 26. So I was that kind of dog in the bubble that only knew yeah. the green world around him. And you think you're at the center of it, you know? And when you're riding your bike, you're the fastest bicyclist that ever lived. And, you know, and, and so a lot of that, Johannes's voice is sort of channeling that kind of reveling in your speed and power when you're 12 or 14 and thinking that nothing could ever be better and you could never be more sort of at the center of things. It did make me think, reading this book, what is home ultimately? If you love the place where you live, but you are searching for whatever exists beyond that, like who are your people if you do choose to leave them one day? Yeah, I mean, Johannes is basically, he doesn't know where his siblings went. His mother is a kept dog in the city. His friends are, you know, a pelican and a 
seagull and a squirrel. one-eyed squirrel and a <laughs> raccoon. I grew up with a one-eyed squirrel as a oh, pet in our yard. And so I that's a, like a homage to our one-eyed squirrel oh. that we fed every day. But he's created this sort of family around him. They all have a job to do. They take it very seriously. And so that is like their world, and it really can't be improved. But when they become aware of a world beyond it, then that's a choice. You know, like yeah. if you live to see, if your soul yearns for beauty, if that's the thing that fills you, fills your heart, I don't know, maybe that's important to keep to seeing, see to see new things, beyond. to see beyond. And so yeah. I think it's like that tug that we all have, family here, Adventure there. <laughs> Adventure there. How do you balance it too? This has been like a central challenge of my life. Same. But I think that you can find that balance. And ideally, you can take those loved ones along with you sometimes and sort of find that way. But I do think that the soul wants adventure. Yeah. Dave Eggers. His new book is called The Eyes and the Impossible. Thank you so much for coming in personally today. This was such a pleasure. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater with How High the Moon, the music of Ella Fitzgerald, a concert tribute to the First Lady of Song. Through May 21st, tickets at MRT.org. And the How God Works podcast, Boston Live Taping, May 15th. Explore Gen Z's collapsing happiness and how ancient wisdom can help. HowGodWorks.org. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Mother's Day is just around the corner, so I decided to talk to some local experts. How do you know a mama? What does a mama do? When things fall down, when you play and they help you rebuild it. What do you like about your mama? I like my mama because she loves me and I love her. If there's someone in your life who loves you as much as you love them or helps you pick up the pieces when things fall down, send them Winston Flowers through WBUR. You'll help us share more of the voices and perspectives in our community. I love my mama so, 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 so. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. So, so, so much. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. It took jurors less than three hours to find former President Donald Trump liable for sexual battery and defamation in a lawsuit brought by columnist E. Jean Carroll. She was awarded a total of $5 million in damages today. Jurors in the two-week civil trial heard Carroll's story of a flirty-turned-violent encounter with Trump at an upscale department store in the mid-90s. Trump denied all wrongdoing and never appeared in court but said... He will appeal today's jury's decision. President Biden, meanwhile, is meeting with leaders of Congress at this hour ahead of a June 1st deadline to raise the debt ceiling or risk default.
Both sides say they want to reduce future debt, but there's very little agreement on how to do it. Almost no common ground on the tax and spending proposals. Biden wants to raise taxes on the rich and big companies. Republicans seek to cut spending as well as end some of the tax breaks for low-emission energy sources. They also want to extend Trump's tax cuts that are supposed to end in two years. NPR's Franco Ordonez. The U.N. says Israeli airstrikes have killed 13 Palestinians, including several women and children. NPR's Michelle Kelman has more. The United Nations envoy in the Middle East says he's deeply alarmed by the developments in Gaza and condemns the deaths of civilians who he says included women, children, and a doctor. Tor Venezlan calls this unacceptable, and he's urging all sides to avoid an escalation. The Israeli military says it killed three Palestinian militants blamed for recent rocket fire toward Israel. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is sounding defiant, vowing to strike at anyone who targets Israel. A State Department official says Israel has the right to protect itself and says it is aware that 10 civilians were, quote, tragically killed. You're listening to NPR News. Police in Kenya have resumed their search of an area along the country's coastal region where more than 100 bodies believed to be members of a religious cult were found. Michael Kaloki has more. Authorities suspended their search of the country's Shakahola forest last week due to bad weather. The country's interior minister, Kithure Kindiki, says investigators will now continue combing through the forest where several members of the Good News International Church lived. The leader of the church, Paul Mackenzie, currently in custody, is believed to have urged many of his followers to starve themselves to death. A commission of inquiry has been appointed by the country's president, William Ruto, to look into how so many people could have died and whether administrative or intelligence lapses may have contributed to the deaths. The president has also appointed a task force to review regulations governing religious organizations. For NPR News, I am Michael Kaloki in Nairobi. New data show efforts by Kia and Hyundai to thwart an epidemic of threats, or rather thefts caused by a security flaw, has yet to solve the problem. Nearly three months ago, um, both the uh, Korean automakers unveiled software to supposedly fix that glitch. But data collected by the Associated Press from seven cities shows the number of thefts is still growing. That report says thieves are still driving off with Hyundai and Kia vehicles at an alarming rate. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Secretary of State Bill Galvin is urging Boston City Council to quickly resolve issues with the city's new electoral map to avoid delaying November's election. The city has to redraw districts after a judge threw out a map that was approved last year by the council and mayor. Galvin says his office will work with city officials to help make any necessary fixes in order to maintain the election schedule. We also believe that in order to do that, we may have to see some changes made, for instance, in the number of signatures necessary to nominate candidates and the process by which that happens. That is a reduction of signatures to make sure that there are sufficient candidates uh, who want to run in these districts. Some Boston residents filed a lawsuit over the new electoral map, claiming it relied too heavily on race as a factor in redistricting. The judge ruled the group's lawsuit had a strong chance of succeeding. A new poll finds abortion laws play a role for students in the Northeast as they decide where they want to go to college. The poll was conducted for the Institute for Women's Policy Research. It found 76% of students questioned do not want to attend college in a state where abortion is restricted. 
The poll focused on the Northeast because the region has the highest share of students that leave their state for college. Abortion is legal in all nine Northeast states surveyed. State lawmakers have introduced a bill to reduce the gender wage gap. Dorchester native and professional soccer player Samantha Mewis testified at the hearing today. She and her teammates won the World Cup in 2019, while at the same time taking on U.S. soccer in an equal pay lawsuit. Last year, her union signed an historic agreement to ensure equal pay for women and men playing on national teams. After decades, our fight for equal pay was successful. For many others, the fight is still ongoing. Without understanding the financial benefits and resources the men were receiving, we wouldn't have even known the levels of discrimination that we were facing. Women in Massachusetts make 81 cents on the dollar compared to white men. The Boston Celtics and Philadelphia 76ers take to the Garden Court tonight in Game 5 of their Eastern Conference semifinal matchup. WBUR's Fausto Menard has a preview. The Celtics dropped an overtime nail-biter in Philadelphia on Sunday, so the best-of-seven series is now tied at two games apiece. That means the team that wins two out of the next three games moves on. Two of those games will be in Boston. However, each team has already won one game on the road this series, so nothing is guaranteed. It looks like the Celtics will be at full strength for tonight's game, while Sixers big man Joel Embiid is listed as questionable. He's played the last three games after coming off a knee injury. Tip-off tonight is set for 7.30. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. And in other sports, the Red Sox take on the Braves tonight in Atlanta. It is 4.37. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. Tonight will be mostly clear and temps in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny with a high around 73. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. And from Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A jury has unanimously found former President Donald Trump liable for battery, sexual abuse, and defamation in a civil trial in New York. This was just hours ago. The writer, Eugene Carroll, brought the case. It stems from an incident back in the 90s at Bergdorf Goodman, an upscale Manhattan department store. Carroll was also awarded $5 million. Now, these are not the only charges against Trump. And this is happening, of course, at a time when he stands as the current Republican frontrunner for the presidential nomination and the primary campaign is about to enter full swing. So to talk about the political ramifications of all this is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey there. Hey, good to be with you. I want to note we have, of course, been talking about Donald Trump and allegations of sexual misconduct for years now. Voters have been aware of these allegations for years now. So I I imagine one question is how much this might move the needle on how voters view him. Yeah, I mean, almost uh, two dozen women had come out uh, before the 
2016 presidential election accusing the former president, now former president, of uh, sexual misconduct or abuse allegations. You know, remember, he also talked openly on that Access Hollywood tape that came out uh, just before the 2016 election that he still won. So it's and easy which was to played see... before jurors in this trial. Yeah, it was. It was. And, you know, so it's easy to see how this you know, might not change the political landscape, you know, and certainly it's hard to see how it will because a lot of these views are baked in. You know, there was one poll respondent that I spoke to uh, last week from the NPR PBS NewsHour Maris poll who had said that he would vote for Trump even if he was convicted of a crime because he agrees with Trump that these uh, charges and cases have been uh, made up, that they're false allegations, and he can't get a fair trial in New York. Okay, what about Republican candidates? Because again, we are headed into primary season, full primary season. What are you watching for there? Yeah, you know, we really have to note that these are this is serious, right? And you know, the, hardly been any reactions to this from Republicans and Republican candidates. And what's really shocking about that, to be honest, is when usually something like this were to happen and you're running in a primary campaign to be president and other people want to beat you, <laughs> you know, they might use this kind of thing against you. But those candidates just aren't sure how to sort of deal with Trump and his base. The only person who's really kind of going after Trump and is not a familiar name is Liz Cheney, the former Wyoming congresswoman who lost to a Trump-backed candidate for her re-election run there and could run for president potentially. She went up with an ad in New Hampshire today attacking Trump over January 6th. Listen to this. Donald Trump has proven he is unfit for office. Donald Trump is a risk America can never take again. Yeah, and she has some serious money in her pack, could certainly make things a little irritable for Trump. But other candidates, you know, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor who could run, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, big names, haven't touched these accusations at all. Uh, Domenico, in the few seconds we have left, has Trump responded to today's news? He did. He uh, took to his social media platform and claimed that he didn't know E. Jean Carroll. Uh, never mind that nothing happened, uh, he says. Uh, Trump had claimed Carroll wasn't his type, but then at the deposition of Trump that was played at the trial, he confused Carroll with his second wife, Marla Maples. So, you know, this is something that I think we can expect he's going to appeal. He said he would appeal even before there was a decision. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro and elsewhere in the program. We will hear from our reporter who has been there in the courtroom in New York. Domenico, thanks. You're welcome. It's been a dramatic day in Pakistan. There have been protests in several major cities after security forces detained the former Prime Minister Imran Khan and took him away in a security vehicle. Khan supporters shut down roads and staged demonstrations outside military installations. That's a rare scene in Pakistan. And authorities shut down Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. With us is our correspondent in Islamabad, Dia Hadid. Hi, Dia. Hi there, Sasha. The big drama, I understand, began today with Imran Khan's arrest, the former prime minister. What happened? Imran Khan was in a courtroom. He was waiting for his biometric details to be processed. He was there in the context of a series of cases he's been enmeshed in. And that's when the video footage begins. And you can see dozens of khaki-clad forces. And they're smashing the windows of the courtroom with batons. And you can hear them here in this tape. <laughs> And then the next video shows Imran Khan being rushed into a vehicle. 
Why was he arrested? Well, the Interior Minister says it was on the orders of an anti-corruption court and it surrounds a case involving a land deal and money paid to one of Pakistan's most powerful businessmen. But Khan and his supporters say this case, like dozens of cases filed against him, are politically motivated. They say it's a way for Pakistan's army to keep Khan enmeshed in legal trouble. The thing is, is that Khan and the military have been on a collision course since he was ousted from power last April. And that happened after the army signaled that they wouldn't support his government anymore. But tensions really escalated this week after Khan doubled down on allegations that a serving intelligence officer was behind an assassination attempt against him last November. And to add insult to injury, Khan keeps referring to this officer as Dirty Harry, like from the Clint Eastwood movies. That sounds like quite a provocation of the army or the military. Was it his arrest that triggered these protests? It was. Khan has many hardcore loyal supporters and they rushed onto the streets to demonstrate as news broke of his arrest. And in one video that his supporters shared, you can see a woman and she dramatically throws down her headscarf before police in riot gear and they grab her and that appears to trigger dozens of protesters to rush in. And scenes like this appear to unfold across Pakistan in these videos that were being shared by Khan's media team. But the most remarkable ones show dozens of Khan's supporters rushing to Pakistan's military headquarters that are just outside of Islamabad. And these were men, some women, and they smashed open the complex gate. And in the videos that people shared, you can hear the protesters shouting, Allahu Akbar, or God is great. And in this context, it's to denote victory. Have a listen. That was a rare and jaw-dropping moment in Pakistan because here the military is the country's most powerful and feared institution. We managed to find one of the guys who filmed this incident and my colleague Abdul Sattar translates for him. Have a listen. There are many protests in Pakistan, but uh, they happen in front of other buildings. Nobody can imagine that they can stage a protest in in front of an army office and especially GHQ. Nobody can imagine that he or she can stand in front of GHQ protesting. GHQ is the acronym for Pakistan's military headquarters. Dia, any sense of where things might go from here? There's concern that tomorrow might bring on more violence. Schools have announced that they'll be closed. So is the US embassy, the German embassy and the EU mission. Uh, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram are still largely cut off. And that suggests authorities are trying to close down ways for people to organise and communicate. One government official has issued a statement saying Khan supporters had crossed, quote, a red line. That suggests potentially arrests are in the offing, but the military so far hasn't commented. That's NPR's Dia Hadid in Islamabad. Thanks, Dia. Thank you, Sasha. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
Now to Arizona and the case of the missing Bibles. A Democratic state lawmaker was caught on hidden camera hiding Bibles left in the House Members Lounge. She later explained her actions as a peaceful protest against the weaponization of religion in politics and a a playful protest for the separation of church and state. She is a Presbyterian minister. But as Ben Giles from member station KJZZ reports, not all of her colleagues are laughing. The footage may be grainy, but Representative Stephanie Stull-Hamilton's actions are clear. Amid a small gathering inside the Arizona House Members' Lounge, she wasn't exactly subtle. She swipes a Bible from an end table and places it under a nearby couch cushion. Another was found in a refrigerator. A prank Stull-Hamilton had been pulling for weeks had finally been captured on camera by House GOP leaders. She's since acknowledged and apologized for her actions. Nevertheless, She's now facing a formal ethics investigation. I hold scripture very dear to my heart. It is what guides me. It is what shapes and informs the decisions I make. In a speech delivered on the House floor, her intent, she said, was never to desecrate or offend. Concerns about the separation of church and state would have been better started as a conversation, not a prank like this. I recognize that my actions could have been seen as something less than playful and offensive. And for those of you who I have deeply offended, I apologize. That was never the intent. Three first-term Republican representatives weren't impressed by her apology. They've since filed a formal ethics complaint, accusing Stahl Hamilton of theft, disorderly conduct, and creating a hostile work environment. The complaint could amount to nothing, or it could end in a House vote for punishment. As little as a censure, at most, expulsion. Some see the investigation as possible retribution for a separate ethics complaint filed this year by Stahl Hamilton herself that led to a GOP member's expulsion. Republican Representative Joseph Chaplick, the chairman of the Ethics Committee, said the matter warrants investigation. Something of this magnitude that's made national news, I think it's only wise to allow the, the person that has the claim held against them to come and speak about it. Uh, due process. Let them talk and understand what happened, and let's figure out if this is a valid or invalid claim against them. Of course, the story only made national news after Republican leaders in the House released some of the footage from their sting operation to a local TV station. I don't necessarily agree with putting a Bible in the refrigerator. Reverend Katie Sexton Wood heads the Arizona Faith Network, an interfaith organization in Phoenix, and is a pastor in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. She doesn't condone Stahl Hamilton's actions, but thinks the point the representative was trying to make at this moment in American politics is important. My faith is weaponized and my scripture is weaponized for one political agenda, um, but I'm really more in a space of grieving right now. And, and knowing that it can get very frustrating when you feel like your voice is taken away from you. Sexton Wood questions whether the Bible should be the only religious document available in the House Members' Lounge. We still need to talk about why it was not, those actions were necessary, um, and that that's going to require a conversation around whether that Bible should be in there or not to begin with. It's a conversation made more difficult by Stahl Hamilton's actions and the pending ethics investigation. For NPR News, I'm Ben Giles in Phoenix. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up at 5, there's new guidance on mammograms. We'll tell you about the recommendation for women starting when they're 40. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. Well, if you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can now do the same thing listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it in the App Store today. Taking a look at the forecast, it'll be mostly clear tonight. Temps will dip to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, we'll see lots of sun again and a high around 73 degrees. Thursday, we should see more sunshine with temperatures approaching 80 degrees. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Northbridge Brass, presenting a patriotic brass concert with BSO and Pops musicians, May 27th and 28th in Boston and Worcester, northbridgebrass.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices, stanhopeframers.com. I'm Daryl C. Murphy, host of WBUR's news and culture podcast, The Common. My mom is the anchor of the family, and without her love and support, I don't know if I'd be the person I am today. I am forever grateful. This Mother's Day, show some gratitude to your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. You'll support local journalism that strengthens our community. Save 10% until midnight tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. You may have gotten mailers or seen online ads for 100% renewable energy plans. They say it's easy to help fight climate change. All you have to do is switch your electric provider. But if you sign up for one of these plans, what are you actually getting? And are you helping to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? WBUR's Miriam Wasser looked into that. I was looking through Instagram the other day when this ad popped up. You. Yes, you. Stop scrolling and take a few minutes to help save the planet. I care about the planet, so I kept watching. The ad told me all I have to do is sign up to get my electricity from a company called Inspire Clean Energy. You get access to 100% gleaming, glistening, sparkling clean energy for your home. In Massachusetts, residents can choose to buy electricity from a private company instead of their utility. These companies are called competitive suppliers, And I've been reporting on them recently, so I wasn't entirely surprised to get this ad. But watching it made me wonder, if I sign up for one of these plans, will my toaster really be powered entirely by the sun and wind? I called Jennifer Bosco. She's a senior staff attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. The supply companies, they're not like literally bringing, you know, solar power to your home. But you wouldn't necessarily know that from the marketing materials. To understand why you don't magically get green electrons coming into your home, it's helpful to picture the electric grid as a big lake. The lake is fed by all different kinds of streams, which are power generators, like gas plants and wind farms. Once the water in these streams enters the lake, all of the electrons mix together. When you turn on your light, you're drawing water from this mix. Okay, so if I enroll in one of these plans, my home isn't totally powered by renewables. 
But am I actually even buying 100% renewable power? The answer is, it depends. But in a lot of cases, probably not. And the reason has to do with how the renewable energy market works. To help address climate change, Massachusetts has mandated that all electric suppliers buy a certain amount of their power every year from regional renewable energy sources. The goal is to ensure that the New England grid is powered by more renewable energy over time. The state tracks these purchases through something called renewable energy credits. Think of them like a receipt. We are tracking everything that any supplier is doing in compliance with our programs. So everything that's required. We don't necessarily know what they are doing on top of that. Elizabeth Mahoney is the head of the Department of Energy Resources, which oversees this system. She says that right now, suppliers need to buy 22% of their electricity from renewables generated in the Northeast. So credits from a wind farm in Maine count. Credits from a wind farm in Iowa do not. But many companies that go above and beyond that 22% minimum look to renewables from places like Iowa because they're cheaper. Clean energy from outside New England isn't necessarily bad, Mahoney says, but as a consumer, you should know that the state can't verify or track any of these purchases. We don't know what they're buying, and they are not doing a sufficient job, or really, for the most part, any kind of job, of disclosing what they've purchased. And there's another wrinkle. While some companies that offer 100% renewable plans buy actual renewable electricity on the market, other companies are just buying extra renewable energy credits. They then offset the fossil fuel or nuclear electricity they buy with those credits. It's a practice that Bosco of the National Consumer Law Center calls greenwashing. Unfortunately, I think it's really preying on consumers who are legitimately concerned about the environment and, and want to do something to help address climate change. Not everyone agrees. Calling it greenwashing, I think, is a bit productive. Frank Kaliva is a spokesperson for the Retail Energy Supply Association, an industry group for competitive energy sellers. He says it's not cheating to buy offsets, even if they don't support renewables in exactly the same way. But I can at least be confident that I've done some part to support an environmental benefit. But many consumer advocates say it's not supporting an environmental benefit. Liz Anderson is the deputy chief of the Energy and Telecommunications Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. She says that when a supplier buys credits from a wind farm in Iowa, or even the electricity from that wind farm, it does nothing to support renewables in New England. That wind farm is not helping us reach our climate goals and reduce the emissions on the ISO New England grid, which is what we need to be doing. So where does this leave us? It kind of comes down to where you want to put your dollars. Here's Elizabeth Mahoney with the Department of Energy Resources again. People who are concerned enough to purchase extra clean energy I got to assume that customers really want to be supporting clean energy that impacts their lives directly, that impacts their air. So if you're in the market for one of these plans, and especially if you're willing to spend a little extra money to buy renewables, it might be worth figuring out where exactly the power is coming from. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Miriam tells us you can check companies' websites or call them to ask for that information, but it can be hard to come by. We have tips on how to avoid competitive suppliers that charge higher prices at WBUR.org.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, the people staying in an Idaho maternity home opened by a crisis pregnancy center after Roe versus Wade was overturned have more complicated stories than the home's founders expected. Clear skies tonight will have temps in the mid-40s. Sunny tomorrow with a high in the low to mid-70s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include MFS. Their active 360-degree approach combines long-term investing with actionable insights and resources. Visit mfs.com active360 and Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness located in Littleton, Mass. More at soaringhawkcenter.com. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A New York jury has found former President Trump civilly liable for sexually abusing and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll. The jury awarded Carol $5 million in damages. It's Tuesday, May 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a panel of experts has issued new guidance on mammograms. The task force is encouraging all women to get screening starting at the age of 40 every other year. The recommendation had been to start at age 50 in most cases. And the national COVID emergency ends this week, though experts say COVID is still a danger. Even at 150 deaths a day, which is way below where it was, that's 50,000 deaths a year. I think that should be unacceptable to us. The White House COVID response coordinator puts the moment in perspective. It's 5.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal jury has found former President Donald Trump liable for battery and defamation in the E. Jean Carroll case. As NPR's Becky Sullivan reports, Carroll says Trump raped her. The nine-member jury deliberated for only three hours before returning the unanimous verdict about the encounter between Trump and Carroll in a Manhattan department store in the mid-1990s. The jury stopped short of agreeing that Trump raped Carol, but they found that he sexually abused her and then later defamed her when he denied her story and accused her of making it up to sell more copies of her memoir. In total, the jury awarded Carol $5 million in damages. On Truth Social, Trump called the verdict a disgrace, claiming still he has, quote, absolutely no idea who Carol is. In an email to NPR, a lawyer representing Trump said the former president will appeal the verdict. Becky Sullivan, NPR News. President Biden is meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders at the White House today in the first substantive face-to-face discussions in months aimed at a looming debt crisis. McCarthy and some other Republicans have been seeking to tie any move to raise the country's borrowing limit to spending cuts, while Biden has repeatedly said the action should be separate from such discussions as it has been in the past. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre today again called on Congress to act. It's very, very simple. Do your job. Go back to regular order, do what you're supposed to do. It's been done 78 times since 1960, and that's what he's expecting from Congress. Absent some deal, the federal government could default on its debt as early as June 1st. Senator Dianne Feinstein's office confirms the California Democrat is returning to Washington after an extended absence due to health issues. 
NPR's Susan Davis reports the California Democrat could be back in the Senate for votes as early as this evening. Senator Feinstein last cast a vote in mid-February, soon after she was hospitalized with shingles and has been at home recovering ever since. Without her vote in the Senate, the Judiciary Committee has been stalled in their effort to confirm President Biden's judicial nominees. Her absence has prompted some fellow Democrats to call for her resignation. Feinstein rejected those calls, and Republicans rejected an effort by Democrats to put a temporary replacement on the committee. At 89 years old, Feinstein is currently the oldest serving member of Congress. She's already announced she will not run for re-election in 2024. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington. Investment bank Goldman Sachs is agreeing to pay a $215 million fine to settle a years-long class action lawsuit that claims the firm discriminated against women in terms of pay, performance, evaluations, and promotions. All the plaintiffs in the case are women who worked for Goldman as an associate or vice president in the company's U.S. investment banking, investment management, or securities divisions. Settlement covers 2,800 female employees. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 56 points. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The state's top health officials are bracing for the end of the pandemic-induced federal health emergency Thursday. Department of Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says even though the acute danger is over, that doesn't mean the virus is gone. The virus that causes COVID-19 is going to be with us for some time. But just like other respiratory viruses, it will continue to mutate, it will continue to change. Its impact on health will change. The severity of disease that it um, presents with will change. The state will now turn its attention from prevention and adaptation to living with the virus. The end of the public health emergency also means the end of masking requirements in healthcare settings in most cases. Tobacco giant Philip Morris USA has been ordered to pay $37 million to a Newton woman who developed brain cancer from smoking Marlboro Light cigarettes. The state Supreme Judicial Court issued that ruling today. A lawyer for the plaintiff argued the woman may have stopped smoking sooner had she not been deceived by the company's marketing. The company claimed Marlboro Lights were healthier than Marlboro Reds, despite internal company research from the 1970s finding that was not true. The Healy administration has received a $3 million planning grant to help the state apply for federal climate money. Governor Healy says the state is vying for some of the approximately $4 billion the Biden administration has set aside for projects that reduce carbon emissions. My job is to work with local officials, with state colleagues, with federal colleagues, and with private industry so that we're really leaning into and making the most strategic and smart investments that we can make. Massachusetts has a goal of reaching net zero carbon emissions by 2030. While skies should stay mostly clear tonight, it'll be a little chilly with temps around 44 degrees. It'll be sunny again tomorrow and warmer than today. Temps should hit the low to mid-70s. Thursday could hit 80 degrees under sunny skies once again. And Friday, we'll have a chance of thunderstorms. Otherwise, it'll be partly sunny with high approaching 80. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. On a Tuesday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Former President Donald Trump has been found liable for sexually abusing and defaming columnist E. Jean Carroll in the 1990s. 
Today, a jury of three women and six men ordered him to pay $5 million in damages. Trump has faced multiple accusations of sexual assault since his 2016 presidential campaign. But this is the first time a jury has weighed in on the validity of those claims. NPR's Andrea Bernstein was in the courtroom when the jury delivered the verdict. She joins us now. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Sasha. This jury deliberated for fewer than three hours before sending out a note that said verdict. Tell us what happened next. Just after 3 o'clock, the jury filed in. The forewoman stood up and told the judge the jury had reached a verdict. Even though there were only two counts to decide on, the jury sheet had 10 separate questions. So on the charge of battery, the jury had to choose between three parts based on the preponderance of the evidence. Did Trump rape Eugene Carroll? Did he sexually abuse her? Did he forcibly touch her? The jury answered no to the question, did he rape her, but yes to sexual abuse. The judge had defined that in his instructions as sexual contact without her consent using compulsion for the purpose of gratifying Trump's sexual desires. Once the jury answered yes to the sexual abuse component, that meant he was liable for battery. And he was also found liable for defamation? Yeah, on defamation, the jury had defined by clear and convincing evidence, which is a higher standard than preponderance that Trump made a false statement with actual malice when he called her allegations a con and a scam. So Trump was found liable on both counts with total damages set at $5 million. In the courtroom, as instructed, the lawyers for both sides were quiet, but some young associates from the law firm working for Eugene Carroll started weeping as the verdict was read. Do you have any sense how the jury was able to reach its verdict so quickly? The judge advised the jurors to remain anonymous, and they did not speak. But the case wasn't complex. There was Carol's testimony that she was assaulted in the 1990s, and the two women she told at the time, both journalists. There were other victims who said Trump attacked them in a similar manner, which the judge said the jury could consider to buttress the credibility of Carol's allegations. And then there was Trump himself, who said on that infamous Access Hollywood tape, that he liked to grab women by the genitals because when you're a star, they let you do it. All that and no witnesses at all on Trump's side. The jury didn't believe his lawyer's arguments that it was all for Carol's profit and political reasons. They said, in effect, this was no hoax. And Andrea, how are Trump or his lawyers responding? On his social media platform, Truth Social, Trump posted in defiance of the verdict, I have no idea who this woman is, and called the verdict a disgrace. Trump's lawyer, Joe Tacopina, told reporters after the verdict that Trump can't get a fair jury in New York, that it was wrong, the Access Hollywood tape was played, and that Trump would appeal. As we mentioned, these are claims that deal with something that allegedly happened in the 1990s. It would typically be unusual to see a claim that old in court. But E. Jean Carroll brought her lawsuit under something called the Adult Survivors Act in New York. Would you explain that? Yeah, this is a new law that passed in New York in the wake of the Me Too movement that allows adults who say they were assaulted years ago to file a civil lawsuit after the statute of limitations for a criminal trial has passed. This case was filed the day the law went into effect, and it's the first case to come to trial. That could mean we'll see more of these cases. Women have until this November to file their claims. No one can be called a rapist or go to jail as a result of the law, but women can get monetary jam 
monetary damages, like Eugene Carroll. Andrew, you have covered Trump's legal tangle since he's been president. What does this verdict today mean for him in the big picture? Yeah, so I've covered criminal and civil investigations and lawsuits and impeachment trials for many years. And even though Trump's company was found guilty last year of 17 felony counts of fraud, this is the first time since he became president that Trump himself was ordered to face a consequence, a finding of liability and being ordered to pay $5 million dollars in damages. That is unprecedented in UN that is unprecedented in US history. It means we have a man found liable by a jury for sexual assault as the Republican frontrunner hoping to occupy the White House once again. And Andrea briefly, this does not mark the end of Trump's legal troubles, is that correct? Nope. He faces criminal charges in New York over hush money payments. He faces a $250 million civil trial, the possibility of charges in Georgia, and investigations by the DOJ, special counsel Jack Smith, into his handling of classified documents and his efforts to undo the 2020 election. And Paris Andrea Bernstein, thank you. Thank you. This week marks the end of the country's COVID-19 public health emergency. Depending on where you live, that may feel like a surprise. Correct. And a lot of places put pandemic precautions and programs in the rearview mirror a while ago. Yes, they did. But this still marks a transition for the federal response in ways that we will continue to talk about on this show, including my conversation today with White House COVID coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha. After several interviews over the years, this was our first in-person and we're going to hear that elsewhere in the show. But first, speaking of precautions, there is a new breast cancer screening recommendation from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. That group says, based on new evidence, women should begin getting mammograms at age 40. And here's Allison Aubrey reports. In recent years, there's been a steady uptick in breast cancer among women in their 40s. And Dr. Carol Mangione of UCLA, who is co-author of the new recommendation, says there's evidence to show that women in this age group would benefit from mammograms. New and more inclusive science has allowed us to expand our prior recommendation and encourage all women to get screenings starting at the age of 40 every other year. The previous recommendation from the task force was for women to start mammograms at 50 and for women in their 40s to consider it depending on their risk. The new recommendation applies to all people assigned female at birth who are at average risk of developing breast cancer, which is still the second leading cause of cancer death among women. About 42,000 women and 500 men die from breast cancer each year and Dr. Mangione says early detection can help save lives. If all women followed our new recommendation, we could reduce mortality from breast cancer in the U.S. by about 20%. That's a big reduction in mortality. Roughly 8,000 deaths a year. The new recommendations signal a growing consensus about the benefits of mammograms for people in their 40s. For years, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has recommended screening beginning at age 40, and the group says conflicting recommendations have led to confusion. Going forward, there will be a simpler, more unified message. We want to come out with a strong message that all women should really 
start screening at 40. Dr. Mangione says the message is particularly important for black women, who are 40% more likely to die from breast cancer compared to white women. She says more research is needed to understand why, and the task force put out an urgent call for more evidence to better assess whether black women could benefit from new screening strategies. It is a health equity issue, and we want to make sure that this message to start at 40 gets out to black women because they really have the most to benefit. Dr. Mangione says the task force considered if annual mammograms could save more lives than screening every other year. We found that every other year was the optimal strategy. The recommendation applies to women who are at average risk of developing breast cancer. There are separate guidelines for people at high risk of the disease. This draft recommendation is open for public comment until June 5th. At that point, the task force will consider all comments as it makes its final recommendation. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. In Georgia, one of the oldest burial grounds for enslaved Africans is falling apart and needs to be restored. In downtown Chicago, two classic skyscrapers have sat vacant for years. Both sites are among the country's most endangered places, a list compiled by the National Trust for Historic Preservations. NPR's Netta Ulibi has more. Every year, the National Trust identifies 11 significant places in danger of being lost to destruction or damage, says Chief Preservation Officer Catherine Malone-France. The 11 most endangered historic places list, it looks like America. Some of the places are grand, like those turn-of-the-century Chicago skyscrapers. Others are decidedly humble. This year's list includes a gas station on Route 66 in Arizona, built in 1929 and owned by the Wallapai tribe. In Louisiana, there's the West Bank of St. John the Baptist Parish. It's the last undeveloped 11 miles along the Mississippi River south of Baton Rouge. That is, according to a video from the Louis Armstrong Foundation, the historic home of numerous New Orleans jazz musicians. Half of them had roots on the West Bank. There's also an endangered site in New Orleans, the Perseverance, Benevolent, and Mutual Aid Society, a historic home to early jazz pioneers and battered by Hurricane Ida. Other endangered places on this year's list include Miami's Little Santo Domingo neighborhood and not one but two Chinatowns in Seattle and in Philadelphia. Chinatowns play a really important role in the history of our country. John Chin runs a Chinatown community organization fighting a stadium proposed for the Philadelphia 76ers. He says it would squash the neighborhood's character and small businesses like the ones his group promotes. We're here at Shi Miao Dao here on 901 Race Street. They specialize in Yunnan Guoqiao Mixian, also known as Yunnan Crossing Bridge Rice Noodles. The National Trust's endangered list has made a difference since it started in 1988. Catherine Malone France points to an old military camp that was home to the Buffalo Soldiers. After Camp Naco in Arizona was included on last year's list, she says, it got over $8 million in grants and is now being restored for community use. To lose this place is to lose a story that is important to every single American. To lose this place is to lose a piece of ourselves. At a moment, she says, when we need reminders of who we are more than ever. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. 
And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the national COVID emergency ends this week. We'll check in with the White House coordinator for COVID response about what that means. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com and BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. On Wall Street today, the Dow dipped 0.17%. The S&P lost almost half a percentage point, and NASDAQ slipped 0.63%. In business news, Waltham Life Sciences company Perkin Elmer has spun off a second company with a different name. The Boston Business Journal reports the company's new business goes by Revity Incorporated. The company announced it would split in two nine months ago. Revity will sell products, including instruments and software, to labs. Perkin Elmer still exists as a subsidiary area of New Mountain Capital in New York. It makes analytical instruments and food quality and safety solutions. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Well, if you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can now do the same thing listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it in the App Store today. We'll have clear skies tonight and temps in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny again, warmer than today with temperatures in the low to mid-70s. It's 55 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. From BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries, brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade nearly a year ago, Americans are having fewer abortions, at least 60,000 fewer by one count. The people carrying these pregnancies are often poor and homeless, and hundreds of maternity homes across the country offer women support. Katie Riddle brings us this story of one new home in Nampa, Idaho. Sometimes Faith still can't believe her current circumstances. It's like, I'm 25 and I have a curfew. This is so gross. I hate it. She says despite her reservations, when she found out about this maternity home outside Boise called The Nesting Place, it was her best option. I just knew immediately. I was like, I'd be so stupid. I'd be so stupid if I turned this up. She's 20 weeks pregnant. NPR is not using Faith's last name for this story. She says her ex-boyfriend was abusive. She doesn't want him to find her. Faith was born in Idaho into a family of hunters and athletes, but she says she always knew that she was meant to be a singer. What song are you going to sing? One and Only by Adele. You've been on my mind. I grow fonder. Every day lose myself in time 
Just thinking of your face and God only knows. When she was 21, Faith moved to L.A. to chase her dream of singing professionally. She met a man who became her boyfriend last year. He's also a musician. Around this time, her life started coming undone. She lost her apartment. I just kind of lived in my car and stayed in motels and the studio. Then things went from bad to worse. When I found out I was pregnant, I was just like, are you kidding me? Faith left L.A., back to Idaho to live with her family. But that fell apart, too. Once again, she found herself homeless. She considered abortion, but she'd had one a few years previous. She still carries grief for that pregnancy. It was really heavy on my heart a lot of the time. Faith reached out to a crisis pregnancy center. Those are often associated with churches. They tried to steer people away from abortion. They told her they knew of a maternity home, a place she could live and have the baby. And I was just like, what? There's just somewhere for me to live? Standing in the kitchen of her new home, Faith points to a calendar. Her days are filled with activities, like Christian support groups. I do have to do my Embrace Grace homework tonight. That's a group for parents, often single mothers. Participants focus on learning parenting skills with Christian values. Faith grew up Mormon. She left the church when she was a teenager. Since she's been back here, she says she's found a new faith. And then my Celebrate Recovery meeting is tonight. The nesting place is a ministry. Executive Director Robin Waters thinks back to a news article she read in 2018. What would happen to your state if Roe v. Wade was overturned? That got her thinking about how many more women would have babies in Idaho if abortion became illegal. Well, wouldn't a maternity home be like the perfect answer? Waters was already running a crisis pregnancy center. The nesting place opened in February. So let me, let's start in this room. Waters gestures to the living room of the newly renovated house. There are two residents living here now. There's space for eight. You can see that door just shuts off the rest of the house. So this is this is the only space where residents can have visitors. This home is funded entirely through donations, largely from nearby churches. Evangelical pastor Keith Wagner stopped by on this day. Sitting in the living room, Wagner recalls the day Roe was overturned. And I remember thinking, like, I can't believe this just happened. Helping women who are carrying pregnancies to term is not something the Christian right was prepared for, he says. Their position has way too often been only defined by what they're against. I'm against abortion. And so what happened was they had to say, oh, hold on a second, okay, we've prayed for this, now what are we going to do? There are 4,000 people in Wagner's congregation. He encourages them to be open to adoption or foster parenting, giving more than just money. And it's not just a sacrifice of a check. It's a sacrifice of the mess and saying, I'm open to my home to be part of this. And do you think your congregation is ready to do that? I mean, that's a pretty big ask. Uh, no, not totally. Idaho has now passed some of the most austere abortion restrictions in the country. Thousands of low-income women or those living in poverty will give birth here this year. But places like this maternity home don't work for everyone. I just feel really alone. 29-year-old Autumn Hendry was considering abortion at nine weeks pregnant. Then she met the people at the nesting place. They made me feel really comfortable and I um, was able to quit using using. She'd been struggling with substance abuse. She was also homeless. The maternity home, the pregnancy, it all seemed like it could work out. For a few weeks it did. 
But then Henry relapsed and had to leave. She's 26 weeks pregnant now and homeless again. I don't want to be pregnant anymore. And so I don't really, uh, I don't really know what to do. Do you regret now not having an abortion? Yeah. On this day, she's sitting outside a house. A guy she knows lives here. She's hoping to stay the night, but she's not sure he'll let her. She feels like she has no good options. Adoption is a possibility, but Henry has been through that once before. Her son, Jacob, was removed from her custody when he was five. He was taken at school and um, I fought for him for three years. Child abuse, the authorities said. He was put in foster care. I started seeing that Jacob was having a really, he was improving a lot while he was in there. And so I just, I decided that it was probably best for him. Henry doesn't want to relive the trauma of giving up another child. Robin Waters at The Nesting Place says among the handful of women they've worked with so far, the prevalence of substance abuse and homelessness has been surprising. I thought it was just like, oh, someone's pregnant, but they have, you know, their parents aren't wanting them to be, or they have no friends, or they need a job. Research shows that women with substance use disorders are at greater risk for unplanned pregnancies. And nearly 20% of people who seek abortions are homeless, according to one study. Waters says she feels for Autumn Hendry, but the no drugs rule is important. Those are some choices that she's made and making. Waters still counts Autumn Hendry as a kind of victory. That's because she convinced her not to have an abortion. The outcomes in this ministry are so hard to see. It can be years later. Years later is something Faith, the singer who moved here from L.A., is also thinking about. Her baby is due in the fall. She's excited, but also mad at how little the situation demands of her child's father. He's still in L.A., as far as she knows. She's not asking him for help. She's afraid of what he might do. It's just, like, unfair when I think about it. He gets to continue his music journey. The nesting place has helped her come up with a plan. Live here six months after the baby is born, that's the limit, become a massage therapist to earn a living, and someday return to her original goal, move back to LA and become a professional singer. This is what she tells herself. I'm just pressing pause right now. But when she hits play on that dream again, things will be different. She'll have her daughter. For NPR News, I'm Katie Riddle in Nampa, Idaho. You're the only one that I want. I don't know why I'm scared, because I've been here before. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the Fort Hood military base in Texas is getting a new name. We'll explain. The picturesque weather will continue the next few days. Tonight, skies will be clear. We'll have a low in the mid-40s. Then tomorrow looks bright and sunny again with a high around 73 degrees. Warmer still on Thursday. We'll have temps around 80 with more sunshine. Friday, approaching 80 degrees. It should be partly sunny, but there will be a chance of thunderstorms. It's 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. 
I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Save 10% until midnight tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In New York City, a jury found former President Donald Trump liable for sexual abuse and for defaming columnist Eugene Carroll, but rejected her claim that she was raped. The civil lawsuit stemmed from an encounter Carroll had with Trump that turned abusive at an upscale department store back in 1996. Trump denied the claims and chose not to attend the trial. Jurors awarded Carroll $5 million in damages. Trump's attorney, Joseph Takapina, says he will appeal today's jury verdict. The Access Hollywood tape should not have come into this case. Some other things should have come into the case. I mean, we made many <clears throat> motions that we thought would would create um, issues for appeal, and, and we're going to em- employ them now. Today's civil judgment could haunt the former president as he campaigns to regain the White House, but it doesn't disqualify him. Trump still faces a swirl of other legal woes. The president of the European Commission paid a visit to Ukraine's capital today to celebrate a holiday that marks the European Union's establishment, although Ukraine is not yet part of the EU, as NPR's Julian Haida tells us. With every visit that Ursula von der Leyen makes to Kyiv, and there have been several, the economic, military, and political ties between Ukraine and the European Union grow closer. This time, she says she's ready to send one million artillery shells to Ukraine, fast-track Ukrainian grain exports, and place additional sanctions on Russia. President Zelensky says that Ukraine is committed to drawing closer to Europe, even culturally. Instead of marking the end of World War II in Europe today like Russia is, Zelensky emphasized that the battle with authoritarianism is ongoing in Europe. He says he's grateful for all those who fought against fascism, but that long-term victory is only sustainable if all of Europe continues to unite for peace. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. In Massachusetts, more residents, most residents, can choose to buy electricity from a private company instead of their utility. Some of these so-called competitive suppliers say they're selling you electricity from 100% renewable sources. If you care about climate change, it can be a tempting offer. But as WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, these plans aren't always what they seem. Many competitive suppliers that offer 100% renewable energy plans aren't actually buying wind and solar power on your behalf. What they're doing instead is buying something called renewable energy credits. Think of them like an offset. Jennifer Bosco of the National Consumer Law Center says these credits aren't necessarily bad, but you're probably paying a premium for something that doesn't help the state meet its climate goals and displace fossil fuels on the grid. You know, unfortunately, I think it's really preying on consumers who are, you know, concerned, legitimately concerned about the environment. Experts say that if you're in the market for one of these plans, it's worth figuring out exactly where the power comes from. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Harvard and Boston University are receiving nearly $7 million from the National Institutes of Health to build a research center focused on climate change and health. The ultimate goal of the three-year grant involves creating a better understanding of the negative health effects associated with climate change. 
University officials say the new center will make it easier for experts in those fields to connect, collaborate, and share data. A local doctor is commending a recommended change to the age women should start getting mammograms. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force now says women should start getting screened for breast cancer every other year starting at age 40. Dr. Laura Dominici of Dana-Farber Brigham and Women's Cancer Center says lowering the age from 50 to 40 is based on more modern and real-world data. She says it's particularly important for minorities since black women are more likely to develop aggressive cancers with worse outcomes at a younger age. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. In sports, the Celtics take on the 76ers at the Garden tonight. It's Game 5 of the Eastern Conference semifinals. The series is tied 2-2. It'll be mostly clear tonight. Temps will dip to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, lots of sun again and a high around 73. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches, with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And we have made a trip across town today to the White House. We have just stepped past security, stepped inside the complex. We are headed in to meet a man who I've interviewed before more than once, but never in person because of pandemic protocols, which is actually precisely why we're here. Nice to meet you. I know. In person. Exactly. Thanks for seeing us. My pleasure. I shook hands today for the first time with Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House COVID-19 coordinator. His job is changing fast with the federal public health emergency ending this Thursday. The country can't be in emergency mode forever. Title 42 restrictions at the border will end. The government will no longer buy vaccines or tests to offer the public free of charge. After more than three years of emergency status, I asked Jha what comes next for the country and for his job. Ah, um, well, we are in a better place and the COVID team will be winding down. Uh, and I've been focused really on making sure that we have a smooth transition and we'll see what happens next. We'll see what happens next. You're right, right now, you're, you're installed in the office and still plenty of work to do. Exactly. Do you expect case numbers to continue going down as more and more people get COVID, more and more people get vaccinated and boosted? You know, it's been very hard to predict where this virus goes. Uh, I think that has been the lesson of the last uh, three years. And uh, obviously what we know is that as long as people stay up on their vaccines, they get treated, that we can prevent nearly all instances of serious illness and death. Um, but the virus continues to evolve and we expect that evolution to continue. And um, my hope is that we can really prevent people from getting seriously ill. Yeah. For the record, you're still recommending that people do get vaccinated. For the record, I am very clear that people need to stay up with vaccines. We think that's really, really important. Okay. How many COVID deaths a year do you think will become the norm in the United States? I mean, understanding that 
any death is too many deaths, what's going to be acceptable? Yeah. Well, we are at about 150 deaths a day right now. I think that is a number that is too high. And especially given that most of those deaths are preventable, I don't have a number that is acceptable or the norm. The target in some ways has got to be that we got to get as close to zero as possible. So how do you think about the threat that COVID poses now in spring of 2023? It's still a real problem. I mean, people often ask me, you know, is this now like the flu? And I'm like, no, it's like COVID. It is a different virus. Flu has a very specific seasonality to it. It's not what we see yet with COVID. Uh, Even at 150 deaths a day, which is way below where it was, even if today is the new standard, that's 50,000 deaths a year. I think that should be unacceptable to us. So I see COVID as an ongoing threat, a real challenge to the health and well-being of the American people. And, you know, we know how to defeat this thing, but we've got to keep pressing and we've got to build better vaccines and better treatments to make sure that we get even more and more effective over time. I was thinking, looking back, March 11th, 2020, is a day I think a lot of people might point to as when the world seemed to turn upside down, the WHO declared pandemic, the NBA shut down, Broadway shut down. A lot of parts of the country have felt, you know, back to normal, and I'm putting air quotes around normal, but for a long time now. That said, if you had to point to a moment where things return to normal, do you think this week is going to be it? Well, it is going to mark a moment for a lot of people. I mean, you know, look, there's an old saying, pandemics end with a whimper, not with a bang. Pandemics often begin with a bang. That moment of March 11th, it was like, whoa. Um, the, The idea of ending with a whimper is the idea that, like, pandemics fade. There's, there are moments we mark. Ending of a public health emergency is an important moment. And for a lot of people, this will feel like that transition. But there's no question that for a lot of Americans, what the pandemic represented is in the rear view mirror. And for other Americans, uh, particularly who are immunocompromised, who are high risk, this moment, while a transition, doesn't make the threat go away. Yeah. Are we any better prepared for the next pandemic than we were for this one? No question we are better prepared. We can now track pathogens in the wastewater. If there's a new outbreak, we can figure out where it is in the country pretty close to immediately. We couldn't do that three years ago. And our ability to do surveillance is just at a dramatically different level. I think our ability to build vaccines and treatments, you know, we, these were theoretical things that we could do. We actually, by demonstrating that we, could, we did them, we have learned a lot about how to do them better in the future. There's still a lot of work to do, but Congress, has to step up and support that. We have to build better vaccine platforms. We have to build, we have to build on this surveillance that we have. CDC had a set of authorities where it could get data from states. That goes away with the end of the public health emergency. That's a problem. And so we have to work out a way in which CDC can continue getting data from states so we can have a national picture on things. So plenty of work to do. What about the consequences of public health being so much more politicized than it was before all this? I'm thinking of vaccines and thinking if we are lucky enough that with the next pandemic, we're able to make a vaccine that works, a lot of people are going to say, yeah, no thanks. Yeah. I worry a lot about the 
the explosion of bad information that has permeated our uh, information ecosystem. No question about it. Uh, and trust in public health officials. And, and respectfully, tr- it's yeah. not where it was. No, it was not. And it is not. And, and we have to rebuild that trust. Look, this is an effort that all of us have to engage in. Um, there were clearly mistakes that public health officials made. Um, we've got to own that. We've got to address that. There's also a lot of people out there who have used every mistake, every misstep by a public health person to undermine people's confidence in public health, undermine people's confidence in vaccines. Um, We've got to counter that with better information. It's not just one or two people. As a country, we really have to do a better job of communicating and and teaching people how evidence works, how science works, how public health works. Yeah. Last thing, we have been talking about the virus and the toll it's taken in terms of death and you know, the medical toll. What about, um, about the emotional toll, the mental toll? We see reports of uh, depression, of suicide, yep. have gone up in yep. the pandemic. And I wonder, is the country prepared to deal with that? How are you coping with that? Yeah, there are a lot of things that have contributed to the, to the mental health challenge that we see in the American people. Obviously, the isolation the loss of, of life and suffering. Uh, you know, literally 1.1 million, more than a million Americans have died for their families and friends. And then I think the kind of, a lot of the anger and vitriol that has come about has caused further isolation and, and challenges for people. We have always underinvested in mental health. We have always under um, sort of valued the importance of mental health. My hope is coming out of this pandemic we redouble our efforts there. I understand that as a country, we are not going to heal from this pandemic until we really address the mental health crisis that it has precipitated. Dr. Jha, thank you. Thank you. White House COVID-19 coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Today in Central Texas, the U.S. Army's 1st Cavalry Division Band played the national anthem. The occasion was the renaming of Fort Cavazos. It's one of the country's largest military bases, and it was formerly known as Fort Hood. Which meant more than just a ceremony. On base, it meant a lot of new signage. The big thing in redesignating from Hood to Cavazos are going to be the visible signs. Brian Dosa is director of public works at Fort Cavazos. There's going to be major signs, big signs. There's going to be medium-sized signs and smaller signs in all. We have about 400 signs that we are going to change. They're not all changed yet. So our strategy was to start with the biggest, most visible, and, and kind of work our way down to less from there. Today's ceremony ended with the reveal of big new signs at the front entrance. I was at the ceremony this morning, of course, and I thought it was just absolutely perfectly executed in an event that just honored the legacy of General Richard Cavazos and really helped people understand who General Cavazos was, how he's impacted our army and how he's benefited Fort Hood, now Fort Cavazos. Richard Cavazos was a veteran of the Korean and Vietnam Wars who became the first Latino four-star general. He was also a native of Texas. I can't think of a better namesake than Richard Cavazos. His bravery in battle, his legacy of leadership and mentorship, 
absolutely the, the kind of leader that we want to be associated with and the legacy that we're going to continue to live up to. Colonel Chad Foster is the garrison commander of the base. You know, we're proud. We're proud to be associated with him. He's one of us. And today was really special because we got to set that in stone. In 2021, Congress passed its annual defense bill authorizing the military's budget. Within that funding bill, Congress also created a commission to identify military sites where the Confederacy still loomed over United States soldiers, sailors, and airmen. The former Fort Hood was named after a Confederate general. Colonel Foster took command just weeks before that naming commission made its first visit. He oversaw this name change. We're not erasing Fort Hood's history. You know, we're not going back and, and changing the past legacy of service and sacrifice uh, that has characterized us for a long time, uh, really since our founding in 1942. No, none of that is changing. Any place, especially our installation for Cavazos, what is it that defines us? And it's, it's our people. In 2020, a series of deaths of soldiers at what was then called Fort Hood prompted the Army to conduct an independent review, which found that leadership was, quote, permissive of sexual harassment and sexual assault. The Army punished 14 leaders of the base, and Colonel Foster took command in May 2021. Well, I would just say that the, the steps to improve our, uh, I guess, the, the culture and climate here at this installation, those steps are, have been underway for a long time. Uh, today is not the start of anything. It's just the continuation of something that's been ongoing for a while. And the challenges that we've had here have been real. Uh, they, have, they have inspired introspection. They have inspired a lot of really hard work by a lot of really, really uh, good leaders who are focused on the right things. And, you know, we're anxious to be on the cutting edge of improving situations and the quality of life for our soldiers. That was Colonel Chad Foster, garrison commander of the base now known as Fort Cavazos. We also heard from Brian Dosa, the fort's director of public works. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for starting your evening with us here on WBUR. Coming up just after the top of the hour, President Biden meets with House and Senate leaders on the looming debt ceiling crisis. We'll have the latest and we'll hear from the father and son journalists from Alabama who just won a Pulitzer. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the How God Works podcast. Boston Live taping May 15th. Explore Gen Z's collapsing happiness and how ancient wisdom can help. HowGodWorks.org. Well, sky should stay mostly clear tonight. It'll be a little chilly with temps around 44 degrees. It'll be sunny again tomorrow and warmer. Temps should hit the low to mid-70s. Thursday could hit 80 degrees under sunny skies again. And Friday will have a chance of thunderstorms. Otherwise, it'll be partly sunny with a high approaching 80 again. Right now, it's 54 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. 
I'm Rupa Shinoy, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. My mom gave me the gift of my family's food, from dal to chicken curry. She taught me to make them the way she and her mom made them, but she also encouraged me to make my own changes. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. Your gift will strengthen journalism that fosters independent thinking. Save 10% until midnight tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Immigration stories are inspiration for countless novels. The author Aaron Hamburger thought his grandmother's immigration journey was worthy of a book, too, especially when he found an old photo of her that didn't quite fit with the woman he knew. She was very loving. She was kind of the idea of of what you would imagine a Yiddish bubby to be. She would sing me (laughs) lullabies. She would make uh, these quote-unquote rock cookies that were warm and soft out of the oven and an hour later were hard as rocks. Um, (laughs) She was uh, really kind of a wonderful presence, but I didn't really know her as a person uh, that well aside from you know, the way a a little boy would know his grandmother. And that's why I was so surprised to find this image of her from 1922, which is in the book, of her dressed in full male drag. That picture and the tale behind it are the impetus for his latest novel, Hotel Cuba. It's about a young woman named Pearl, who in the 1920s leaves Eastern Europe's poverty and anti-Semitism for the United States. But she's diverted to Cuba, and that changes how she views the world. I asked Aaron Hamburger why both women, his grandmother and the character based on her, ended up in the Caribbean on their way to the U.S. There was a kind of hysteria going on in the United States and in many other places, a fear that what happened in Russia with the communist revolution would happen in other places. And so there were these new laws enacted first in 1921 and then in 1924, which actually became the basis for immigration laws uh, you know, going forward for many years that limited uh, immigration from Eastern Europe. And the vast majority of immigrants were coming from Eastern Europe were Jewish. And so uh, there was a loophole in this law which said that you couldn't come to America from Eastern Europe, but if you could get to Cuba or Argentina or Mexico, you could establish residency there for a year. And then you weren't coming in from Eastern Europe. You were coming in from whatever that country was. And the steamboat companies that were missing out on a lot of this income that they'd been making from ferrying immigrants over the United States were actively promoting this as an alternate destination. They're saying, hey, just go to Cuba for a year and then you can get into the United States. So my grandmother decided to go with her sister to to Cuba, a place she had never been. She had no idea what it was like. Um, And I love how she summed up the decision to go in the recorded interviews, three little words. So I went, (laughs) just like that. And, and, And so she went. There's a point in the novel where someone makes an observation and they say, when Americans come here to live, meaning Cuba, it's Mm -hmm. generally because they've failed at something back home. Hmm. That was really interesting. Tell me more about that. And and was it just that anyone who leaves their native country is leaving something they've failed at? Or is it specific to people who leave the U.S.? I've actually been an expatriate uh, a few times in my life. And it's interesting. Sometimes you do meet those people who... They thrive in other places, and for some reason, they sort of don't fit in at home, and they end up becoming expatriates and and living in other countries. And so, 
uh, that was my thought behind that that remark. And um, just thinking about the varied cast of characters that the main character, Pearl, in the story based on my grandmother, comes into contact with. You can see a number of people who find um, Havana to be this kind of liminal space where more things are possible than they would be in the more sort of straight-laced American society that they came from. I want to go back to that photo you mentioned of your grandmother wearing pants in the early 1900s, so Mm -hmm. surprising. There are several times in your novel that you mention clothing. There's mm-hmm. a line where you say, before the Great War, when people cared about what they looked like. And then there's a, a line where they talk about clothes, teaching the world to treat people with dignity. And, she, and your grandmother felt transformed by wearing those pants. Why that, that clothing theme? I relate to my grandmother as a creative artist, as somebody who expressed herself through design. And I just loved imagining how she might look at different materials and try to design them and put together and what her design aesthetic might be in the same way that I, as a writer, think very carefully about the kind of language that I use, the kind of sentences that I create, uh, the kind of characterization and setting that I, that I try to create with my words. And so a lot of my grandmother's thoughts about um, creation are, are mine in some sense. Um, thinking about the act of creativity and creating with intentionality. I don't want to give too much away, but in your novel and in real life, your grandmother eventually did get to the United States. Mm-hmm. And as as with many immigrants, it was not the paradise she may have hoped for. Her life was rough, at least at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Did they also find it difficult in a way they didn't expect? So my grandmother says that when she finally arrived to New York to be reunited with her sisters, she said, when I saw how my sisters were living in New York, I wanted to go back to Russia. <laughs> I mean, she, she was definitely shocked by the, the poverty that they lived in. And as I did research into other immigrant narratives, that was a common theme. You know, America had been built up as the golden land, literally the golden and Medina. And there was all this mythology about how wonderful and how great it was. It would be hard, I think, for almost any country to sort of live up to that mythology. Uh, But then when you sort of look into what it was like to live in the Lower East Side or in these immigrant enclaves in New York, I mean, they were, they were packing them in and uh, living in in really tough conditions and working in sweatshops, long hours, difficult jobs. Um, And, you know, in some sense that hasn't changed today in a lot of immigrant communities. Uh, And that was one of the things that really motivated me to tell the story were how many links I found between the stories of immigrants in the past and immigrants of today. Yeah, you know, on that note, I didn't consider this a political book, but Mm. at the end of the novel, you wrote that in poring over primary and secondary sources, And your words are, I encountered quite a bit of harsh language, often Mm -hmm. eerily reminiscent of the most bitter rhetoric of our contemporary politics. Yes. Did you come away thinking that the political, societal problems and divisions we have now are are the same as then, different than then, better, worse? Well, it's fascinating because I went to the National Archives and I handled, you know, actual documents of the uh, people who were in charge of immigration at the time and also read letters from everyday people who were writing in to say, uh, I'm reporting on this problem of undocumented immigration, although they didn't call it that at the time, to protect the purity of our blood pool. Um, and you would just also in these letters, these they were so beautifully worded in this kind of flowery, old-fashioned language. And then in the middle of it, they would drop the most vile racist terms that you've ever heard in your life. 
So perhaps the style and the, the flair with which this rhetoric is deployed has, has changed. It's probably coarser now, um, but the vitriol of it I don't think has changed. Your novel is set more than a century ago. Mm-hmm. What do you think it has to teach us about today? I think the profound kindness uh, kindness is shown to strangers. Um, it's amazing how often my grandmother was helped by people that she never saw again, um, but they really went out of their way to, to ease her path, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in larger ways. And if we can all perform more of those kindnesses to each other, what a better world we'll have. That's Aaron Hamburger. He's the author of the novel Hotel Cuba. Aaron, thank you very much. Your book is great. Oh, thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Plymouth Gin Distillery, Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. You're listening to WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from father and son journalists from Alabama who won a shared Pulitzer for their investigation into a local police force. We'll have clear skies tonight and a low around 44 degrees. Tomorrow will be bright and sunny again with temps in the low to mid-70s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden has said he wouldn't negotiate with Republicans over raising the debt ceiling. But now, with possible default looming, Biden is holding talks with congressional leaders. It's Tuesday, May 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. You might have signed up to buy third-party electricity that's billed as 100% renewable, but what are those suppliers actually selling in Massachusetts? They're not like literally bringing, you know, solar power to your home, but you wouldn't necessarily know that from the marketing materials. Also ahead on Marketplace, telehealth appointments surged during the pandemic, especially in mental health care. I don't have to drive, I don't have to clear my schedule, I can just kind of like log on, have that conversation, log off, send her a Venmo, and we're done. It's 6.01, news headlines are first. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A jury has found former President Donald Trump liable for sexually abusing advice columnist Eugene Carroll in the mid-1990s. Over jurors stopped short of Carroll's claim Trump raped her. More from NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Even though there were only two counts to decide on, the jury sheet had ten separate questions. So on the charge of battery, the jury had to choose between three parts based on the preponderance of the evidence. Did Trump rape Eugene Carroll? Did he sexually abuse her? Did he forcibly touch her? The jury answered no to the question, did he rape her, but yes to sexual abuse. The judge had defined that in his instructions as sexual contact without her consent using compulsion for the purpose of gratifying Trump's sexual desires. Once the jury answered yes to the sexual abuse component, that meant he was liable for battery. The New York jury awarded Carroll a total of $5 million in damages. Trump's lawyer says he'll appeal. Talks between President Biden and Republicans on the debt ceiling have now ended, though neither side appears to be budging from their initial positions, with more meetings scheduled later this week. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more on today's session. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy faced off at the White House as time is running out for Congress to raise the federal government's debt ceiling. The president kicked off the meeting, setting the bar accordingly. Now we're going to get started to solve all the world problems. Some of Biden's top aides stood nearby as Biden began his meeting with McCarthy, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and House Democratic Leader Hakeem Jeffries. They're hoping to reach some form of agreement to raise the debt ceiling in the next few weeks, before the Treasury Department warns that the government could run out of money to pay its existing debts. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Russia has stepped up its airstrikes in recent days. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the Pentagon's announced a new defense package for Ukraine. The U.S. will send additional Hawk air defense systems that fire missiles. The Pentagon will also provide drones that can be used to knock out incoming Russian fire. Shortly before the U.S. announcement, Ukraine said it shot down 23 of 25 Russian cruise missiles fired overnight. Many targeted the capital, Kyiv, but no casualties were reported. While Ukraine takes out a high percentage of incoming Russian missiles and drones, it says it needs more air defense systems and ammunition. The U.S. assistance is expected to take months to get to Ukraine because it will come from contractors and not from existing U.S. military supplies. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. U.S. officials say 550 active-duty U.S. military personnel have begun arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border, the first wave of support ahead of the end of Title 42, what's expected to be a sharp increase in migrants arriving. The Dow was down 56 points. This is NPR. There are continued reports the man who opened fire at a Texas mall, killing eight people before being shot and killed by police, spent time on extremist social media platforms, and also apparently did research on when the mall was busiest. Authorities say 33-year-old Marcio Garcia posted photos on social media in mid-April of a store near where he carried out the attack last Saturday. LinkedIn says it will lay off more employees worldwide as it deals with declining demand. As NPR's Bobby Allen explains, it's the latest tech company to pare back operations amid an industry-wide slowdown. LinkedIn says 716 jobs will be cut in the face of, quote, market and customer demand fluctuating. LinkedIn has about 20,000 employees globally, but the layoffs represent the largest scaling back the company has ever done. The tech industry has been rife with layoffs in recent months. Executives have cited cooling customer demand and a pullback in corporate spending. Another big factor, companies say, is overhiring during the pandemic. 
LinkedIn parent company Microsoft has cut 10,000 jobs. Facebook parent company Meta and Amazon together have shed nearly 50,000 jobs. As part of LinkedIn's downsizing, it says a China-based jobs app would be shut down. Bobby Allen, NPR News. An auto industry trade group is warning today overly aggressive U.S. targets for emissions may rely on too rapid a transition to electric vehicles. It could also pose problems for manufacturing and supply chains. The Environmental Protection Agency is proposing sharp cuts to emissions, pressing for 60% of new vehicles being electric by the year 2030 and 67 by 2032. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. State Senate leaders today unveiled their budget proposal to fund state operations for the new fiscal year that begins July 1st. As WBUR's Steve Brown reports, it's somewhat in line with what the House passed last month. The Senate's nearly $56 billion plan comes in $400 million less than the House version, but the Senate number could grow once amendments are adopted. The Senate is looking to make community college free for everyone by the fall of next year. Senate President Karen Spilka said they want to make it free for nursing students this fall. We constantly are hearing about the shortage of nurses in our health care system and the concerns that all of our providers, our residents have because of this shortage of nurses. So this investment $20 million will pay dividends over time. The full Senate will debate the plan later this month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Secretary of State Bill Galvin is urging Boston City Council to quickly resolve issues with the city's new electoral map to avoid delaying November's election. The city has to redraw districts after a judge threw out a map that was approved last year by the council and mayor. Galvin says his office will work with city officials to help make any necessary fixes in order to maintain the election schedule. We also believe that in order to do that, we may have to see some changes made, for instance, in the number of signatures necessary to nominate candidates and the process by which that happens. That is a reduction of signatures to make sure that there are sufficient candidates uh, who want to run in these districts. Some Boston residents filed a lawsuit over the new electoral map, claiming it relied too heavily on race as a factor in redistricting. The judge ruled the group's lawsuit had a strong chance of succeeding. A new poll finds abortion laws play a role for students in the Northeast as they decide where to go to college. The poll was conducted for the Institute for Women's Policy Research. It found 76% of students questioned do not want to attend college in a state where abortion is restricted. The poll focused on the Northeast because the region has the highest share of students that leave their state for college. Abortion is legal in all nine Northeast states surveyed. A Brighton man faces charges he worked for the Chinese government, providing information about groups and people considered opposed to that country's government. Letang Liang was charged with conspiracy to act as a foreign agent. He was arrested today and is scheduled for arraignment in U.S. District Court in Boston Thursday. State lawmakers have introduced a bill to reduce the gender wage gap. Dorchester native and professional soccer player Samantha Mewis testified at the hearing today. She and her teammates won the World Cup in 2019, while at the same time taking on U.S. soccer in an equal pay lawsuit. Last year, her union signed a historic agreement to ensure equal pay for women and men playing on national teams. After decades, our fight for equal pay was successful. For many others, the fight is still ongoing. Without understanding the financial benefits and resources the men were receiving, we wouldn't have even known the levels of discrimination that we were facing. 
Women in Massachusetts make 81 cents on the dollar compared to white men. Well, the westbound portion of the Ted Williams Tunnel will be closed from midnight tonight to 5 a.m. tomorrow. The State Department of Transportation says they will be doing road work and fixing fans inside the tunnel. Traffic will be detoured through the Sumner Tunnel. Taking a look at the forecast, looks like a lot more sunshine is headed our way the next few days. Tonight will be mostly clear. Temps will be in the mid-40s. Then tomorrow, sunny with a high around 73. Thursday, lots of sun again with temperatures getting to about 80 degrees. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A federal jury in New York has found former President Donald Trump liable for battery and defamation in the lawsuit brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. Carroll says Trump raped her in a Manhattan department store in the mid-1990s. She's been awarded $5 million in damages. So stay with us. We'll have more on that decision coming up. But first, here in Washington, the White House was the setting of a high-stakes meeting. President Joe Biden sat down with congressional leaders from both sides of the aisle. On the agenda, crafting a deal to raise the debt ceiling. That would allow the federal government to keep paying its bills, you know, things like Social Security and the military. After we pass a clean debt ceiling bill and get the debt The sad part here is now the Democrats need to do their job. Our MAGA Republicans in Congress are threatening to do all this progress. Was there any chance this group would end the bickering and make a deal? No one thinks this is going to be the meeting where it happens. It's just necessary to get the process started. A White House summit where the president has home field advantage. That's nothing new. Biden has used it before, as have his predecessors going way back. Trump held an Oval Office meeting with then-House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer in December 2018. That was shortly before Democrats took control of the House. Trump tried to hold the pair's feet to the fire on border wall funding. If we don't have border security, we'll shut down the government. This country now, these meetings are not always about money, but they often are. And across decades, administrations and Congresses, they all seem to use the same stagecraft. Well, we've all seen the kabuki theater of these things before. The leaders of Congress arrive at the White House. There's a gaggle of media people, cameras and microphones, uh, maybe some shouted questions in the room, maybe some smiles, a little show of confidence. And then the meeting begins. The president and the leaders then talk in private and come back out to announce what has been accomplished or not. But if it's just political theater, what's the point? Is there a larger endgame at work? Yes, and it entails a far larger cast than just these four congressional leaders and President Biden. Many people who are working for them are going to be working on this more or less around the clock for the next several weeks. So how does what happened at the meeting tonight set up that round-the-clock work over these next several weeks? To hear more about that, let's bring in NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh. She is at the Capitol. Hey there. Hey there. Hey there. So the president has been insisting Congress needs to pass a clean bill to lift the debt ceiling that there. The speaker, meanwhile, says any bill has to include spending cuts. Did any middle ground emerge tonight? No, both sides are really still really dug in and just kept repeating their messages. Speaker McCarthy told reporters not, not a lot changed after tonight's meeting. Everybody in this meeting reiterated the positions they were at. 
I didn't see any new movement. The speaker said he asked the president several times if there were places they could find savings in the federal budget, but he said the president wouldn't give any. But he did say that the, the president and the other party leaders did agree to meet on Friday. And what are Democrats saying? They repeated that the House bill just doesn't have any chance in the Senate. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the speaker was pressed during the meeting to commit that there would be no default. We explicitly asked Speaker McCarthy, would he take default off the table? He refused. I guess the problem here is that economists say default would be really bad, Deirdre. Nobody, exactly. Nobody's saying they want it. So is either side signaling what might make them move? Not yet, but I think one tidbit of progress out of the meeting is that there is now a process for the staffs of both sides to meet during the week and prep for that other meeting that they scheduled for Friday. In terms of those opening positions that they kept repeating, the reality is the House Republican bill is dead on arrival in the Senate. Democrats keep calling it the Default on America Act. But also what the president wants and top Hill Democrats want, a bill just to raise the debt limit with nothing else attached to it cannot pass the House or the Senate. The speaker has argued repeatedly that the last time there was divided government in a debate over this issue in 2011 and Biden was the vice president, yeah. there was a bipartisan deal with spending reforms attached to the uh to increase the debt limit. It's worth noting that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was a key player in that negotiation. Here's what he said coming out of tonight's meeting. The solution to this problem lies with two people, the President of the United States who can sign a bill and deliver the members of his party to vote for it, and the Speaker of the House. Do we know, Deirdre, what might be happening behind the scenes? I'm imagining both sides here would be trying to to affect the outcome uh, in the negotiating room by maneuvering outside the negotiating room. Right. There's definitely an inside and an outside game. We do know that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and other top Biden economic advisors are reaching out to the business community and CEOs to try to urge them to talk more about what a default could mean as a way to increase pressure on the speaker and other Republicans. Even before this meeting, the president scheduled a trip to visit Hudson Valley, New York, which is the district of a, a House Republican, Mike Lawler. That's a swing district. Lawler's going to attend that event on Wednesday. We also know that Republicans, for their part, are targeting Democrats with their message about the need to cut spending. So there's a lot of political messaging going on around these tense negotiations. Just a few seconds left, but uh, even though we're not seeing movement, is there any sense of what a deal might look like? There could be some kind of deal with some spending caps. That has happened in the past. Uh, President Trump then agreed with then-Speaker Nancy Pelosi on that kind of deal. There's also talk about maybe including some bipartisan policy uh, provision to a debt bill, mm -hmm. something like speeding up permitting for new energy projects. But there'll be a lot more talks over the next few days. NPR's Deirdre Walsh at the Capitol. Thanks. Thank you. There's a joke that journalist John Archibald tells about reporting in his home state of Alabama. Uh, it's a great place to do news. You can throw a rock and hit a scandal at any given moment in time. John and his son, Ramsey Archibald, threw one of those rocks. They ended up uncovering a scandal at a local police department outside Birmingham. Their reporting for the website AL.com resulted in the resignation of the police chief, four new laws, a state audit, and a Pulitzer Prize awarded yesterday for that father-son team, along with their colleagues Ashley Remkes and Shallon Stevens. John and Ramsey Archibald are with me now. 
Congratulations to both of you. All of us in journalism are so happy for what you accomplished. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. John, you, the father, have the rare fortune of having won a Pulitzer before, but now the two of you are winning one together. What does it feel like to be a father-son winning this together? It's the most amazing thing I've ever felt. But, you know, sitting here today, to do that with my kid is, is the greatest thing I've ever done in my career. And Ramsey, for you? It's, it's really difficult to put into words, honestly, but it's really just a pleasure and an honor to work with this team and to do it with my dad is unbelievable. But to do it with the journalist that my dad is, uh, you know, take our relationship out of it. I'm pretty lucky to do that also. Your reporting was not just one story, but multiple stories over the course of last year. For our listeners who haven't read your reporting, could you give a brief summary of what you found? Um, there are moments in a reporter's life when, you know, the hair on the back of your neck stands up because you know you found something, and this was a series of those. This is a town of 1,253 people that had a one-man police department and very little crime reported to the state, yet it uh, was using fines and fees to fund half of its revenue. You can get pulled over for anything in Brookside. Uh, some of the common things were following too closely or not, or having a paper tag up from a car you just bought. Or, and people would get stopped for something like that and end up with seven or eight or nine or ten charges against them, misdemeanors that would that would cost them thousands and thousands of dollars. John, I understand you had some concerns, some reservations about your son entering a profession that has been so rewarding to you. Why was that? I, I worry because it's a very difficult business to get into for any young person these days because jobs uh, are often um, perilous. And so I worry about that. But at the same time, I'm out giving speeches to people saying, you know, we desperately need young, smart, creative, thoughtful, honest young people to carry us through journalism until we figure this stuff out. So how in the world could I not want somebody I know who is all of those things um, to go in the business. And Ramsey, you went into the business, even though the industry is in rough condition right now, and you went to work alongside your dad, which can have ups and downs. How has that been? Yeah, uh, the vast majority of the time, it is amazing. Uh, and, you know, I'm saying that now after teaming up to win a Pulitzer, so maybe I have some rose-colored glasses on. But um, <laughs> even before now winning his second, even before winning his first Pulitzer Prize, you know, he was the golden standard of journalism in Alabama. And growing up with that and then deciding to sort of follow in his footsteps, that wasn't necessarily an easy decision, but I'm very fortunate to have been able to do it and, and to work together with him. Is, it's been amazing. I'm sorry. I'm just saying you should hear the names he calls me on the basketball court. <laughs> That's a separate matter. In journalism today, sometimes you can put a lot of hard work into a story and then feel like it didn't make a difference. And that's really disappointing. But you really made a difference with this story. Can you talk about some of the ways you improve people's lives? Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff over the years that cost people jobs, that cost politicians their careers, or that, you know, sent people to jail. And those that's one kind of feeling, and it's really important in journalism. But in this situation, I mean, there were people over and over coming to me and saying, you know, I got my life back. and. Uh, in 37 years of doing this job, I've never experienced anything like that. And it gives me a whole new perspective on why we do this job. I mean, I mean, that's the reason you get into this field. And it's so great to be, you know, to get this kind of recognition and for people to pay attention beyond Alabama. But it would have been worth it without any of this just to 
have those people, like you said, come say, you know, I got my life back from this. Um, I think that's all you can ask for. That was AL.com columnist John Archibald and data reporter Ramsey Archibald, his son. They're part of the Pulitzer Prize-winning team that uncovered a series of stories about aggressive policing in the town of Brookside, Alabama. Thank you to both of you, and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. On Wall Street today, the Dow dipped 0.17 percent. The S&P lost almost half a percentage point, and Nasdaq slipped 0.63 percent. In business news, tobacco giant Philip Morris USA has been ordered to pay $37 million to a Newton woman who developed brain cancer from smoking Marlboro Light cigarettes. The state Supreme Judicial Court issued that ruling today. A lawyer for the plaintiff argued the woman may have stopped smoking sooner had she not been deceived by the company's marketing. The company claimed Marlboro Lights were healthier than Marlboro Reds, despite internal company research from the 1970s finding that was not true. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include BG Catering Concepts, who believes in the power of great food to bring people together. Learn more at bgcateringconcepts.com. In sports, the Celtics take on the 76ers at the Garden tonight. It's Game 5 of the Eastern Conference semifinals. The series is tied 2-2. And the Red Sox will face the Braves in Atlanta tonight. Closer Kenley Jansen is one game away from becoming only the seventh pitcher in MLB history to have 400 saves. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Taking a look at the forecast, we're going to have lots more bright, sunny skies coming this week. First, it'll be mostly clear tonight. Temps will dip to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny skies, high around 73. Thursday, again, more sunshine. I don't think many of us can get sick of this. We'll have temperatures around 80 degrees on Thursday. And then on Friday, approaching 80 again, but we'll have a chance of thunderstorms under partly sunny skies. Right now, it's 55 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. You may have gotten mailers or seen online ads for 100% renewable energy plans. They say it's easy to help fight climate change. All you have to do is switch your electric provider. But if you sign up for one of these plans, what are you actually getting? And are you helping to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? WBUR's Miriam Wasser looked into that. I was looking through Instagram the other day when this ad popped up. You. Yes, you. Stop scrolling and take a few minutes to help save the planet. I care about the planet, so I kept watching. The ad told me all I have to do is sign up to get my electricity from a company called Inspire Clean Energy. You get access to 100% gleaming, glistening, sparkling clean energy for your home. In Massachusetts, residents can choose to buy electricity from a private company instead of their utility. These companies are called competitive suppliers, and I've been reporting on them recently, so I wasn't entirely surprised to get this ad. But watching it made me wonder. If I sign up for one of these plans, will my toaster really be powered entirely by the sun and wind? 
I called Jennifer Bosco. She's a senior staff attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. The supply companies, they're not like literally bringing, you know, solar power to your home. But you wouldn't necessarily know that from the marketing materials. To understand why you don't magically get green electrons coming into your home, it's helpful to picture the electric grid as a big lake. The lake is fed by all different kinds of streams, which are power generators, like gas plants and wind farms. Once the water in these streams enters the lake, all of the electrons mix together. When you turn on your light, you're drawing water from this mix. Okay, so if I enroll in one of these plans, my home isn't totally powered by renewables. But am I actually even buying 100% renewable power? The answer is, it depends. But in a lot of cases, probably not. And the reason has to do with how the renewable energy market works. To help address climate change, Massachusetts has mandated that all electric suppliers buy a certain amount of their power every year from regional renewable energy sources. The goal is to ensure that the New England grid is powered by more renewable energy over time. The state tracks these purchases through something called renewable energy credits. Think of them like a receipt. We are tracking everything that any supplier is doing in compliance with our programs. So everything that's required. We don't necessarily know what they are doing on top of that. Elizabeth Mahoney is the head of the Department of Energy Resources, which oversees this system. She says that right now, suppliers need to buy 22% of their electricity from renewables generated in the Northeast. So credits from a wind farm in Maine count. Credits from a wind farm in Iowa do not. But many companies that go above and beyond that 22% minimum look to renewables from places like Iowa because they're cheaper. Clean energy from outside New England isn't necessarily bad, Mahoney says, but as a consumer, you should know that the state can't verify or track any of these purchases. We don't know what they're buying. And they are not doing a sufficient job, or really, for the most part, any kind of job, of disclosing what they've purchased. And there's another wrinkle. While some companies that offer 100% renewable plans buy actual renewable electricity on the market, other companies are just buying extra renewable energy credits. They then offset the fossil fuel or nuclear electricity they buy with those credits. It's a practice that Bosco of the National Consumer Law Center calls greenwashing. Unfortunately, I think it's really preying on consumers who are legitimately concerned about the environment and, and want to do something to help address climate change. Not everyone agrees. Calling it greenwashing, I think, is a bit productive. Frank Kaliva is a spokesperson for the Retail Energy Supply Association, an industry group for competitive energy sellers. He says it's not cheating to buy offsets, even if they don't support renewables in exactly the same way. But I can at least be confident that I've done some part to support an environmental benefit. But many consumer advocates say it's not supporting an environmental benefit. Liz Anderson is the deputy chief of the Energy and Telecommunications Division at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office. She says that when a supplier buys credits from a wind farm in Iowa, or even the electricity from that wind farm, it does nothing to support renewables in New England. That wind farm is not helping us reach our climate goals and reduce the emissions on the ISO New England grid, which is what we need to be doing. So where does this leave us? It kind of comes down to where you want to put your dollars. Here's Elizabeth Mahoney with the Department of Energy Resources again. People who are concerned enough to purchase extra clean energy, 
I got to assume that customers really want to be supporting clean energy that impacts their lives directly, that impacts their air. So if you're in the market for one of these plans, and especially if you're willing to spend a little extra money to buy renewables, it might be worth figuring out where exactly the power is coming from. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Miriam tells us you can check companies' websites or call them to ask for that information, but it can be hard to come by. We have tips on how to avoid competitive suppliers that charge higher prices at WBUR.org. Thanks for spending part of your evening with us here at 90.9 WBUR. And join here and now's Robin Young, Tuesday, May 16th at City Space for a conversation about toxic restaurant culture and how it can change. Free tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 6.30. Marketplace is next. I'm Deepa Fernandez. My mum gave me her fierce yet kind way of standing up against injustice. She had everyone's back from the supermarket worker to people who might have gone hungry if she didn't bring them a meal. She taught me that we only rise if we all rise together. Thank your mum this Mother's Day with Winston Flowers from WBUR and you'll support the station that has your back. Save 10% until midnight tomorrow. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org.